I was waiting for the lights to change, and they're not. All right, good morning. There you are. All right. Oh, they're gone again. Okay. Good morning. Glad to have you here today, and uh, welcome all the folks that are joining us online as well. We're going to jump right into things. I want to start off with a statement. I, I honestly do not remember where I read this statement, but I thought it was a good one. It's a rather obvious statement, um, but uh, sometimes, you know, the real obvious things don't really hit home quite as much unless you read them, you see them, besides just hearing them. So let, let me show you uh, what I'm talking about. The more involved a person becomes in the work of the congregation, the more important the congregation becomes in their life. Now, if I'd been originating this, I probably would have used some different terminology like church instead of congregation, but, uh, um, but let's read it again. The more involved a person becomes in the work of the congregation, the more important the congregation becomes in their life. Like I said, it's, it's a pretty obvious statement, but yet there is a whole lot of truth that's wrapped up in that, and it has to do with invested interests. You know, it kind of goes along the line of the principle of whatever it is that you're really investing time in, time and energy, um, that's what you're going to be thinking about. That's what you're going to be reflecting about. That's what you're going to be valuing. And that's along the lines of what this statement is saying. Now, a case could probably be made for the flip side as well. Without altering it very much, we could probably remove the word more both times it appears in the passage, or passage, in, in the quote, and um, replace it with the word less. And I think it still will be a true statement, just headed a different direction. The less involved a person becomes in the work of the congregation, the less important the congregation becomes in their life. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's some truth. I think there's some truth wrapped up in that. Today, I want to get the ball really rolling here by, by making a statement that, you know, I, I stand on um, for one very obvious reason is because it is certainly a biblical uh, statement. I make no apology for, and that is this. God wants you to be active in your faith. This is a biblical principle. There, there is no room of argument, you know, against that because the Bible is so clear in teaching this. There are several passages we could go to, uh, notably one of them that immediately comes to mind is James chapter 2. Let me show you the way that chapter ends, verse 26, says, Just as a person's body that does not have a spirit is dead, so faith that does nothing is dead. Okay, so the verse speaks for itself. But it's actually at the tail end of a longer passage of Scripture uh, because James kind of had a rum, running start in getting to the point where he said that. And, I, and that's not going to be our primary text today, so I'm not going to develop this passage of scripture but let me show you the first verse in the flow of what's being said there verse 14 it says my brothers and sisters if people say they have faith but do nothing their faith is worth nothing 
can faith like that save them? So you see, these passages are being pretty clear in what they're saying. And what they're saying is that God wants you, God wants me to be active in our faith. And there's a, there's a ton of other scriptures that build on that. For example, Paul, at the very end of almost an entire chapter being devoted to talking about the resurrection of Christ and the value that that holds for us, at the very tail end of that chapter, he closed it in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying this, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. And that's because we're building upon the foundation of the truth of the resurrection of Christ. The victory that we have in Christ. So nothing that we ever do for the Lord in the Lord's name is ever something that is done in vain. Okay. So just based on that starting. Let me ask, what is the church supposed to look like? What, what is the church, when someone steps into the doorway of the church for the very first time, and I'm talking about the church building, when someone steps in, but they spend some time here, and I'm not just talking about one Sunday, but they, they spend time here, you know, multiple times stepping in the door. What are they going to encounter? What are they going to observe? What are they going to see and I'm asking the question specifically in regards to God's design for the church because that ultimately is what matters what are we told is God's design for the church now most of us as people we naturally look at things kind of from a physical perspective and so so when we think about what is God's design for the church we may immediately start thinking about the physical you know, characteristics of the church building. And so what's God's design for that? Well, the answer very simply is not much. You don't find much in the Bible regarding God's design for, for um, the place that we meet, the building that we oftentimes refer to as a church. Now, a lot of us, from our own collective experience, when we think about a church building, we immediately start thinking about things like a vaulted ceiling because it seems to be that what is in a ton of churches. Perhaps uh, the childhood church, maybe that you and your family had gone to many years ago. There was a vaulted ceiling. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. Okay, there's nothing biblical. There's no verse that you can point to that, you know, talks about that. Just by getting in your car and driving around town, one of the physical characteristics we think about when we think about a church is a steeple. Because it seems like most churches have steeples. But there's no book, chapter, and verse that talks anything about steeples. So there is no case that can be built that's saying that that is part of God's design for his church. Pews. That's something that a lot of us had now whether or not they were just hardwood pews or padded pews you know that may have varied but uh, that has been the case for a number of us in our experience as we look back over our shoulder over the years but again there's nothing about that in the bible if there was you wouldn't be sitting in what you're sitting in right now bible doesn't say anything about it stained glass windows same argument can be made 
That's why we built a room with no windows. There's no verse in the Bible that says you got to have windows and they got to be stained glass. No, the Bible's pretty silent about stuff like that because God gives liberty in things along those lines. Even in other aspects of the church, we're not told a whole lot of specifics, one of which would be dress code. You know, again, a lot of you that are in here years ago, you know, you had it drilled into you, your Sunday best is what you should wear. Well, you can spend a little bit of time looking around you right now and you, you, uh, you know, well, you can tell the chief season is starting. So I guess in that respect, we're wearing our Sunday best, right? You know, with all these arrowheads and stuff like that on people's shirts. But, uh, but no, normally when we think about Sunday best, you're thinking about, you know, dresses and ties and slacks and things along those lines. But you've been around long enough to know that that's not any kind of a dress code that we have here. The only thing we have as far as a dress code is maybe no Broncos colors, I think. <laughs> I'm still trying to find the verse because I know it's got to be in the Bible, but, but, uh, but otherwise, God gives us liberty as far as the way that, that we dress. Style of music, you know, what's right and what's wrong. What we did upstairs at 8 o'clock or what we just did here, you know, with Steve going bonkers on the drums a moment ago. You know, which one's right, which one's wrong? Again, there's nothing in the Bible that says one way or another. The order of worship. Oh, this is a good topic to bring up. Whether we do it kind of in an approach that we're more accustomed to, or whether we do it where the sermon's at the very first thing before any songs. Which one is right? Which one is wrong? It's not a matter of right and wrong. Both are right because God gives us liberty. Whether we use a pulpit or a music stand or a flat table or nothing at all up here for the one who is teaching. Yeah, there's a verse in the Old Testament that talks about the person that got up to speak and explain scripture stood up on a platform. But it wasn't so much of thus saith the Lord, this is the way it's always got to be done. There's nothing that's said about stuff like this. We have liberties. But having said that, there are certain things the Bible is quite clear about when it comes to the church. And I'm going to spend the majority of our time today looking at one sentence in the Bible. Okay, so if you thought we were going to deal with a big, long, lengthy passage of Scripture, we're just going to primarily focus our attention on one sentence. Now, I will let you know it's a long sentence. If you got your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Ephesians 4, open uh, uh, your Bible app or whatever, if, if you got an iPad or a phone, uh, follow along. Because we're going to spend all of our time right here. So you'll want to be looking back at this passage multiple times. I'll show, I'll break it down, most of it, a little bit with some slides. But, uh, but here initially, let me just read all of that. Starting in verse 11, going down to verse 16. It's six verses, but in the Greek, it's one sentence. You will see in your English translation, a couple of periods come up. 
No, it's not there in the Greek. There are no periods until the end of verse 16. It's one long sentence. Here's what it says. It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so, so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will let all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, when I look at this passage, what I see is a call to action. In the book of Ephesians, earlier Paul was emphasizing the importance of unity within the church body. But it's kind of like at this particular point in time, um, it's a call to action. So let me show you what the call to action is. Let's break it down. And so let's start off with verse 11, where he said it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. Okay, there's several categories that are listed out here. So let's briefly break these apart. Apostles and prophets is referenced initially. These involve people who are foundational to the establishment of the church. And Paul had already pointed that out in his letter to the church in Ephesus. Because if you go back to chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, if you look at that, you know, that's the passage that refers to Jesus as being the cornerstone of the church. But it also references apostles and prophets with Jesus being the cornerstone. And that is the foundation of the church that was laid. And so these first categories of people are part of the foundational people in, in uh, uh, which the church was established. And then it references evangelists. This is a word that really isn't found very much in scripture. It's found three times. Uh, what does it refer to? Well, you know, the word itself tells to evangelize. An evangelist is someone who, who evangelizes, who, who shares the gospel with people who um, don't know Christ. Timothy is the guy that's referred to as an evangelist uh, here in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, verse 3, and in verse 5. So two of the three times it's directed toward Timothy. And then we have the words pastors and teachers found in the text. The pastors and the teachers, they were responsible for, obviously, the teaching. But more than just the teaching. They're responsible for guarding the truth, for guiding, for shepherding, and so on. This is probably a couple of the terms that need the least amount of elaboration because these are the ones that we're most familiar with. So, so who are all these people that are being listed in verse 11? These are leaders. These are leaders in the church. Okay, it's just talking about different categories that had particular roles in the church. 
So what is their purpose? Overall, what is the purpose of all of the individuals that are listed there in verse 11? Now, don't answer this too quickly. Think through this a little bit. What is their purpose? Because the traditional view that has existed for a long, long time isn't necessarily totally a biblical view of what these leaders are all about, what their role ultimately is all about. You see, long before I was born and long before you were born, people developed within churches, and I can't speak about other countries and the church and other lands, but in the churches that by and far make up um, um, the United States, the churches within our country, that there, there was a hired gun mentality that as time went on that developed more and more within the church. A mentality that, that you hire someone to come and to do the work of ministry in the church. For a lot of you maybe that grew up in a, a small community or a small church, you know, you probably saw it pretty clearly there. The typical view is that a pastor is someone that you bring on in order to do the work of preaching, to do the work of teaching, to put out fires, to solve problems, to do the work of administration, marrying and burying, and doing the work of visitation. You know, that's what a pastor is all about. A hired gun. That's why you take offerings so that you have some funds by which that you can pay that individual to do ministry for you. That has been somewhat of a common mindset that has existed within churches. It sounds reasonable, but primarily it sounds reasonable because it's kind of the way we've seen things done for a long, long time. And that's why it seems reasonable. But is it what the Bible teaches? Is that really what the Bible lays out for us? So after verse 11, and it lists out all of these uh, different categories, but basically leaders in the church, now in verse 12, we're going to start getting into the why, why they exist. And it goes on to say, to prepare God's people for works of service. Now, I've bolded the word service because um, in some of your translations, like the New American Standard Bible, if you have that, I think the word ministry is found there. But uh, just so you know, uh, when, when the word service and the word ministry, you know, are being used, they're, they're both coming from the same Greek word. It's the same word. It's just translated sometimes service, sometimes it's translated ministry. And so like this verse, it is talking about preparing God's people for works of ministry, just as much as it's saying for works of service. But the key word, I think, in that is the word prepare. What is behind the word prepare? Let me just go to another verse that's in the Gospels. I don't have a slide for it, but it's Matthew chapter 4, verse 21. It's the same exact word, letter for letter. 
In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, Jesus went down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and there he saw James and John. And you remember what James and John did occupation-wise. You know, they, they were fishermen. And sure enough, they're in a boat. And it says specifically in Matthew 4, verse 21, that James and John were preparing their nets. Now, some translations say mending their nets, repairing their nets. What's behind this word? Well, there are several things behind the word. What they were doing, they had been out in the key time of fishing was in the wee hours of the morning when it was still dark and all that. That was the key time for fishing. And so now they've come back into shore and they're doing this. They're preparing their nets, which means that they're, they're cleaning out any seaweed or other type of debris that has gotten caught in the nets. They're stitching whatever torn holes have been made in those nets they're untangling those nets and they're folding those nets that's all part of what James and John were doing but the key here is understanding that they were not preparing the nets for storage they were preparing the nets for service so it would all be ready once they got done with all of that they would go home they would eat they would sleep, and then they'd be coming back out, and they could hit the ground running, or hit the water, you know, running. They could immediately jump right into fishing. There wouldn't be a whole lot of preparation time having to go into it. So when that word is being used in Matthew chapter 4, it, it is talking about a preparation for service. And that's exactly the way that it's being used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, that leaders in the church are to prepare God's people for works of service so that they can be engaged, so they can be plugged in, so they can be hitting the ground active in ministry. That's what this is talking about. Why are pastors hired? Pastors are hired not to do ministry in place of other people, but rather pastors are hired to direct and recruit and train and empower people in the church to do the work of ministry. That's what Ephesians chapter 4 is teaching. But to what end? What are we working toward? What, what is the end result? What is the goal? Well, let's continue the passage. The tail end of verse 12 and all of verse 13 says this so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, at the end of verse 13, you see a period. I already told you there's really no period there because the thought continues. It includes, and so I'm going to start reading verse 14, and it it continues the line of thought of what you see underlined on the screen. It says, Then we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up. In love. 
You see, this is the end that we're working toward. This is what it is about, is maturity, is development, is growth, so that we don't remain infants. Now, everybody loves an infant, right? Everybody loves a baby. Babies are cute. We've got some cute, we've got some cute babies that are here in, in, in our church body. You know, it's kind of funny how it works that, that, and a lot of you have been down this road, it may have been a number of years back, but, but uh, you know, when you're young and you get married and, and, you know, your family, you know, around just kind of, oh, look at the cute couple, you know, and cute this, cute that in regards to this couple. But as soon as a baby is born, the couple, out of sight, out of mind, it's all about the baby, right? All attention begins to rifle in on that cute baby. We all love babies. However, do we want the baby to remain a baby indefinitely? Do we want the baby five years later to still be sucking on a pacifier and needing diapers changed? What about when they're 10, 15 years old? How about they're graduating from high school and they still wear diapers? I mean, it's not so cute anymore, is it? Yeah, we want development. We want, we want to see the baby grow. We want to see the baby mature. And there are different development stages that, you know, a baby is to go through. Well, you know, when you are born again in Christ, you are, in a very real sense, an infant in Christ. You are immature. You're a new believer. And so, you know, you, you, you might be pretty naive about some things. And uh, as far as what Christianity and, and what God's will is for you and all, that's understandable. You're just getting a start spiritually. But as time goes on, you are to get your feet underneath you and you are to start developing and maturing. And you are to start getting to a place where you're not as gullible to false teaching anymore. That's what that passage goes on and says. You know, in the early days, you know, somebody can at work or somebody can knock on your door and they can tell you something. And boy, you have a hard time discerning whether it's right or wrong. But as time goes on, you should be growing in your faith. You should be developing and so that you're not naive and you're more discerning. You know, and, and you go from being like on the teaching end of things, uh, being taught to where you can actually be the teacher. That's all part of the development that should be happening in our lives. It's about building up the body of Christ. That's what we see laying out here in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, going all the way down to verse 16. It's about building up the body. That includes in numbers, but it certainly goes beyond numbers that we're building up people. That's a part of the one another's that I was talking about a couple of Sundays ago. I mentioned that there's like a hundred one another statements found scattered throughout the New Testament that we are to love one another, we are to encourage one another, we are to be devoted to one another, we are to greet one another, and just on and on and on. It's, it's a big long list of all these one another statements, and not the least of which is we are to build up one another. That statement is found multiple times. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 is one of those times. We are to build up one another. And that's a big part of what this passage of Scripture in Ephesians 4 is talking about. 
You know, building up is, it, it takes effort. It takes intentionality. Tearing down, well, that's pretty easy. Anyone can tear down. In a couple of Sundays from now, I'll be talking about our words and how we use our words and, and, uh, um, and how, you know, we can be pretty careless with our words. And, and whether it's deliberate or not deliberate, we can easily tear down people around us in our own family, in the church family, in our workplace. It's easy to tear people down. But to build people up, you need to be more intentional. And that's what this passage is talking about, is building people up. Years ago, Clint and I were young. We just had uh, um, our twin sons, and we were living in a farming community. Um, the church that we were serving in was a growing church, a healthy church, and uh, the town Though, to give you an idea, this town, unless you're looking at an atlas, you will not... No, you, unless you're looking at a, um, a state map, a single map of Illinois. Otherwise, you will not find this town because it's not listed. It was only 100 people in this town. But yet the church was growing and soon was going to be well over twice the size of the town. And so we were running out of space and we decided that what we needed to do is, is uh, we needed to build an educational wing onto this church. And uh, um, because we needed both space for children and for adults, you know, for Sunday school and stuff like this. One, one of the farmers in a leadership meeting, he said, well, I've got, I've got an old two-story farmhouse that's just sitting a mile outside of town. No one's lived in it for a number of years. And I know it's got a lot of good lumber in it. The church is welcome to it if they want to come and get it. And it's like, yeah, let's do that. So we scheduled a Saturday on our calendar. And without advanced preparation, we showed up. Dozens and dozens and dozens of people showed up. And we were all bringing, you know, picnic lunches and stuff like this. And some people had saw horses. Some people had sledgehammers. Other people had crowbars. And we had, we had all these kinds of tools. And, and, uh, and I was part of the group that was wearing face masks and and a breathing mask and went in with sledgehammers and we were pounding away on the plastered walls which created this huge cloud inside but we were trying to get to the studs because the studs that was a gold mine in a house like that because the two by fours were really two by fours if you know what I mean you go to a lumber yard today and you say I'm going to get a two by four well they're going to actually give you a one and a half by three and a half you know, it's not a two-by-four. It's a lot smaller than what the real two-by-fours are. Well, this house had been built with square nails and real lumber, and it was all hardwood lumber. And, and so we were tearing it apart with sledgehammers on the inside. There were people up on the roof tearing the roof off and knocking the chimney down. There were people out by the barn sweeping, because there was a nice barn on the corner of this property, sweeping the barn out, because that's where we were going to store all the lumber. There were other people setting up sawhorses, and they had hammers and crowbars over there. And so as we would free up some of the studs inside, people would carry it to the people on the sawhorses, and they would go to work driving out all of these nails. And then there was another team of people that would carry it to the barn and stack it in its appropriate piles. 
And so we kind of had this whole systematic process going on, and we stopped, and we ate lunch together, and then we went back to work again, and by evening time, we were folding up the sawhorses and putting them in the trucks, and, and uh, we were closing the barn doors, and, and uh, this big square two-story farmhouse, all of the good lumber was stored away in the barn, and uh, all of the rest of the garbage from it that wasn't reusable was thrown into the basement and so it was just level in one day we tore down a big house and then we set about creating blueprints to build a two-story somewhere around nine or ten classroom um, addition to the church with a couple of small bathrooms attached um, built into it and, and we went to work on that. Yeah, it took more than a Saturday to do that. It took months and months to do that. But by the time we were done, we had something very useful that is still being used to this day. It's easy to tear things down. You can do that without giving a whole lot of thought to it. But to build up, you got to be a lot more intentional. And you got to be um, putting forth a lot more effort into the process. That's what Ephesians 4 is talking about. We are not all about tearing down. As a church, we do not tear down. We build up. We build up one another. And so God has given us leaders... And those leaders are to equip and prepare people so that these people can, throughout the church, can be engaged in meaningful ministry, building up the body of Christ. That is not a strategy that we originated. That wasn't in a leadership meeting. We said, hey, how about we do it this way and we be strategic about it? No, this is something God laid out for us a long, long time ago in his word. This is God's plan for a healthy church. You see, what the Bible is teaching is that God's design for the church involves you. It involves me, but it involves you as well. Because those of you that were following along on your iPhone or on, in, in your uh, uh, Bible, you know I didn't finish the passage. I almost finished it. But there's one last phrase in verse 16 I haven't read yet. It ends by saying this, as each part does its work. The word part, that is a reference to you. And that is a reference to you and a reference to you. It's a reference to me. Each of us are parts of the body of Christ. God doesn't want us to be spectators. He wants us to be participants with him in what needs to happen. This is what ministry teams are about in this church. You perhaps have read it somewhere or you've heard us talk about ministry teams. Some churches maybe call them committees or some kind of groups or something, but, but we here have always called them ministry teams. And uh, the whole purpose of that is to be able to um, equip people, prepare people to be engaged in ministry, to be engaged in service 
When it comes to living Christian lives, God has, has called us, the lives that he's called us to live, we need each other. We need each other and what each other can contribute to that. The last 18 months have been rough for the church in America. It's been rough for our church as well. Now, I don't just mean on an emotional level. There's other stuff that, that you may not have even been exposed to because there was scrambling that needed to happen because there was a percentage of people that were just for safety reasons having to take a step back and just saying, I really can't be engaged. I can't be actively involved right now as far as a responsibility, as far as volunteerism is concerned. I cannot do that right now. I need to be staying home. I need to be staying safe. But the reality is the church still needs to be the church. And so we were scrambling, trying to cover bases, picking up a few additional responsibilities along the way. Yeah, it's been kind of rough over the last 18 months because we've still been trying to be Crossroads Christian Church, but, you know, with a reduced number of people actively engaged in service. And that has been a challenge. And that's part of why in this whole series of Together Again, as we're talking about this, we want to talk about the importance of, of being unplugged. And as, as we're kind of coming out from the seclusion that was uh, involved, the separation that was involved during this whole COVID time, it's time to get plugged back in again. It's time to get involved in the life of the church. And if you feel like, you know, you don't have anything to, to really contribute, that other people have a whole lot more to contribute, I would differ with you because the Bible says you do have something to offer. There are multiple scriptures. First Peter chapter four, verse 10 is one of them that tells that everyone has received a gift. As a believer, everyone has received a gift. Now, there are other passages that talk about how maybe you need to fan into flame the gift that you have received, a little bit of trial and error in order for you to fine-tune just what it is that you're good at. But uh, Peter said it this way, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. We don't use our gifts to benefit ourselves. We use our gifts to help others in the body, in the family of God. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So we did something last uh, February, the end of February, the beginning of March. We had ministry team sign-ups, which we do that every year. We devoted four Sundays to it. However, we knew we were working with a reduced number of people because there were, were a percentage of people that still just didn't feel safe, you know, to come out and to interact in person stuff like that. But we went ahead and had ministry team signups. The results, you know, were less than what they had been in previous years, but there were some results, and that's what we've been functioning with over the last several months. But we announced at that time, and you would have heard it online if you weren't here, that we announced that in the fall we were going to do something we hadn't done before, is that we were going to devote a couple of Sundays to opening up ministry team sign-up again. Because we figured that by the fall, things would be opening up more, in which they have. And so the very last Sunday of September, September 26th, and the first Sunday of October, October the 3rd, we're going to have ministry team signups. This is after our small group signups 
you know, have, have completed um, on the 19th in a couple of weeks, or that's next Sunday, isn't it? Uh, next Sunday. Then the Sunday following that, we're going to have ministry team signups. And so I would encourage you, you know, to go to the website to read about the different ministry teams. There's over 20 ministry teams to choose from to see which one you can be plugged into. I'm going to have a Scott, and I saw Scott get up. Scott, are you there? Go ahead and grab your mic and come on out here. Um, Scott and Troy are going to come, and they're going to share a few words, just about one of the opportunities that I have found. A lot of people still aren't aware of this thing we call Stephen Ministry, and these guys are going to give a, a plug for that. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I think you are. Yep. Good morning. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Scott Robinson. I'm one of your Stephen leaders together with uh, Troy Reed here. And we just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Stephen ministry, what it is. And looking around out there, I do see several faces that have either been Stephen ministers or potentially Stephen care receivers. And Stephen ministry is a lay Christian uh, pastoral care ministry. And uh, it was founded several years ago, um, basically by a Methodist minister. He was a, also a uh, doctor of psychology. That uh, He went through a tragic loss in his, his own life. He lost his wife to cancer. And as a result of that, he found that there was something significantly lacking that he, even as a professional counselor, didn't have quick access to, and that was something like Stephen Ministry. So uh, Stephen Ministry started at that point in time, and uh, basically what it is is uh, 50 hours of training that trained Stephen Ministers will go through to provide pastoral care and augment the uh, facility of, of the larger church. So with that, um, let me just read something really quick because I think this summarizes better than anything else what Stephen Ministry is. After the phone call you hoped you'd never get. After the funeral, when everyone has left and the, and the emotions you've held at bay come crashing in on you. After the relationship falls apart and the bottom falls out of your life. After the doctor says, there's nothing else I can do. After the nursing home director shakes your hands and says, welcome to your new home. After the last child leaves, honks the horn, waves goodbye. After the gavel comes down, the handcuffs go on, and your loved one is led away. After the baby arrives, demanding more of you than you thought you could ever give. After you find a pink slip with your final paycheck. After your family and friends have heard your story one too many times, but you still need to talk it out. That's what Stephen Ministry is. And... I think it is a uh, wonderful and valuable ministry that we have in this church. It is available to you. And uh, we're going to be starting up a new class to train up some new Stephen leaders because we believe that uh, along with the charter of our church, it is our duty to grow and to reproduce. So uh, with that, I'd like to give it over to Troy. He's going to tell you about a class we've got coming up. Thanks, Scott. <clears throat> now we have... Um we have a class coming up on Wednesday this week, um, starting at 6.30, and it's going to be more of an informational um, time, so if you've thought about this or maybe you've prayed about it and just really didn't have a lot of information, this would be a good time to come out. 
Um, we are going to try to start a class uh, towards the end of September on uh, the 22nd if we get enough people involved. But it's it, to just tag on to what Scott said, um, this is a great ministry to be able to come alongside people and help them through a difficult time in their life. And it's a very worthwhile ministry. Uh, we train you up and then, you know, then you're able to be able to do the ministry. Um, as G Brad has been saying all day today, um, it, it just equips you to, to be the minister of, um, part of the ministry of the church. And, um, if you want to come out and get some more information, uh, 6.30 on Wednesday evening, and then um, we'll go from there. Thank you, Brad. All right. Very good, guys. Thank you, Troy. Um, Patrick, better get to Arrowhead. They're probably waiting for you. Um, so, so a perfect example of hands-on ministry that obviously a few hired guns, we cannot cover the level of support and ministry that needs to happen that stuff like this is able to, to help with. And, and so it, it's a perfect illustration of what we're talking about. So if you're interested, and there's no commitment involved in this, but if you're interested in learning more, this Wednesday night down at the other end of the building is where that classroom is, um, they're going to have an orientation meeting. And I would encourage you to show up for that. Okay? Now, like I said earlier, the last Sunday of September, the first Sunday of October, um, we're going to have signups for like 20 other, 20 some other ministries. Because there are needs down in our children's department. There's needs in our uh, teen ministry. There are needs with our building ministry team, our grounds ministry team, our nursery uh, last I checked, could use some help, right? And uh, we, we need teachers, you know, of children and uh, teachers of adults. Um, we have a missions ministry team, music mi uh, ministry. We've got a welcome ministry, and I know I'm leaving off some fellowship ministry. I mean, you can go to the website and, and look at some descriptions of the 20-some ministry teams that we have and be praying about it and see and where God's leading you, where he is prompting you to be involved. Because, again, the last word on this is for the church to be the church, each part needs to play its role. Each part needs to be involved. So, as we move in to communion, let me ask this question. Why? Why should I? I mean, what would be my motivation to do this? Well, we've got motivation. You stop and think about what it is that the Lord has done for you. Just reflect on that for a moment. What has the Lord done for you? He's created you. He's given you the air to breathe. He's provided for you. I mean, you apparently have been able to find stuff to put in your belly. You've got a home to live in. God has been providing for you. But he didn't stop with that. Your greatest need of all needs involved your eternal destiny. Because of sin, 
that was fouled up. And so he sent his son, Jesus, to die a very cruel death on the cross. Jesus didn't die because he was forced to die. He didn't die because he was overwhelmed or overpowered. He died because he voluntarily was taking your cross, your penalty, and paying it so you could be freed from your sin and you could have an eternal home in heaven waiting for you. And in just a moment, as you take the bread and you eat it, you're going to reflect on the body of Jesus that was nailed to that cross. You're going to take the cup and you're going to drink it. You're going to reflect on the blood that was shed in those final hours as he was hanging on the cross, dying for you, dying for me. Do we have any um, motivation to get involved? To kind of serve the Lord? Yeah. We all should be motivated because of what he's done for us. And might our service be a reflection of our gratitude. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Forgive us for when we take all of this for granted. We just kind of accept the fact that we're saved, we're on our way to heaven, and then we just spend our time trying to enjoy life along the way. Father, help us not to be that small-minded. Help us to take a step back and look at the big picture and to have hearts of gratitude for everything that you represent and all that you mean to us and how we owe everything to you. Thank you for Jesus. And that will be the praise that we will be giving both now and forevermore. It's in his name we pray. Amen.